great Australian dream is to have a house on a quarter acre block, right? Something like that. For most countries, that's not practical. Like most countries are living in higher density. And so as we get more migrants as well, there's more propensity for people to be happier living in a pub. I live in an apartment right now. Like I'm in a, I'm in a two, two bedroom apartment. I actually, we, we had a whole big, you know, big villa and all of that kind of stuff. I actually prefer the apartment, right? And so people have a preference to more compact living. And in fact, that's a macro trend that we can see as well. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash Insider, the auditory epicenter for property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And if you want to create freedom, choice, and abundance, you need to build a property portfolio that is actually going to walk you towards your dreams. I'm excited for this episode. This is part two in a little mini-series that we're doing, broadly speaking, on diversification, or another way to think about it is how to get to your goals faster and with less risk through better asset selection. We spoke about, in the last episode, we spoke about modern portfolio theory and a whole bunch of other kind of wacky stuff. The real core message from that was that we should be seeking outcomes, not assets. Joining me on today's episode to follow on this conversation are the same mugs from the last one, Sean Simpson and Jason DeSilva. How are you guys? Excellent. How are you yeah. going? Wonderful. Thank you. Ready I'm excited to, to. I'm yeah. So I'm good. Well, let's get into it because I'm excited to dig into this because um, one of my favourite Winston Churchill quotes is uh, when the fact the whole quote is when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, madam? Because it was talking to uh, lady at the side. And I think this is one of the f- most fundamentally important things that um, people can take on board. Another way to think about it is strong beliefs loosely held. You should, you should be absolutely um, confident in the decisions you're making, but when you're faced with new information, new facts, you must be prepared to take a new position. There's another saying that, uh, that, I, that I really like. I think it's actually a French saying that only a fool never changes his mind. And I think that um, what we are going to be talking about today is going to be pretty interesting on that, on that vein as well. Most people would know that we've spent a tremendous amount of money and we continue to spend a tremendous amount of time and effort understanding how the property market works and with the single goal of helping people to get to their dreams faster, sooner, better. That's the whole modus operandi. And recently, Sean, you embarked on a bit of a uh, research project and I'd love to start by digging into this research project. What, what was the Kind of t- talk to us about like why did it start? Like what was the what was the premise? What were you trying to achieve? And we can kind of talk about what you found. Can you give us the background on this research. Yeah, so like you said, we we sort of pride ourselves on constantly questioning our assumptions, which I think is one of the the best parts of my job because you know myself, the property team, the team over at Dashshot Technology are always trying. You know, quite often things that I'd even say a wacky combination of of data, correlation analysis, all sorts of things, so that we can get we can find any possible opportunity that might be able to get us get our clients to their goals quicker. So recently we've we've sort of tried to break down some of our assumptions we might have had about where you should buy, what you should buy, all these things that are, are very long standing assumptions, you know, not just with us but within the industry as well. So we started comparing regionals, capitals, different asset types, all sorts of things. And I think we've stumbled upon what I believe is, is a pretty substantial breakthrough. Before we go there, though, why? What were we trying to achieve, right? So, I think it's I think it's really important to kind of like take a little step back. It's good to go, hey, we we love to do heaps of research, right? But fundamentally, what people need to understand is that the this is actually one of the things that I love most about the real estate market. The real estate market is a hyper dynamic market. 
So what that means is it's always changing. Number one, there is no one market in Australia. So everyone thinks, oh, there's the Australian property market. Lies. It's a big, big, it's bullshit, right? There's 15,363 towns and suburbs in Australia. Each one of those is a unique market that has its own unique dynamics. Within that, you can break it down to even smaller chunks and smaller components. So there's markets within markets within markets within markets. And every single one of those markets is moving slightly differently because it has slightly different combinations of drivers. And so if you want to become successful in real estate, necessarily you must be hyperdynamic as well. Because if you have a an approach, which might be, for example, um, the way to success is to buy blue chip properties in Sydney. That pathway may be true for a period of time. But given that given the, the, the context is the market is hyperdynamic, which means it's always changing and always moving, and there's always different markets going up and down, that, that won't be true all of the time. And so if you want to become more successful in real estate, you actually need to start to think, okay, so if you've found something that works, that's great. You've got to assume that it's not going to work forever, right? And you've got to then say, okay, or it may, let me rephrase it, may not work um, as well as you want 100% of the time because it's unlikely that it's going to go backwards or bad, but you might just get an underperforming asset. So then what you need to start to think about is like, how could we identify opportunities to, you know, participate more appropriately in a more diversified way across more of the market dynamics? And how would we know if that was a right move to do? Because there's so many different asset types and market types and all of that kind of stuff in Australia. We were joking on the last episode about, you know, a dance studio in in uh, Humpty Doo. You know, that's a commercial property in a highly regional area, right? So we've got these different different ways that you can think about not only markets, but then how do different assets in different markets work? And if you, the better you can understand that, the more sophisticated you are, the more informed you are. And the greater your ability to find success in any period of time. Because even if you look at in the US, right? For example, when the when the GFC happened and the, the housing market crashed, didn't crash everywhere, right? And so if you can start to work out how to play this game better, you're going to be able to get better results in all seasons. So this is the kind of underlying premise. So on that basis, we said, okay, how can we start to understand some more of this? How can we start to tease out different markets, different assets. Is that kind of a better setup? Do you think it's good? Yeah, definitely. And not just identifying the opportunities, but how can we identify these opportunities early, like earlier than everyone, like looking at yeah. things where everyone else isn't looking. And it's very funny that you say it's a hyper, hyper dynamic market because it is because the industry tends to be a hyper, whatever the opposite of dynamic is, slow moving in terms of their thinking. Yeah. Like a lot of people will Hyper-static. have the same investment thesis. <laughs> yeah, static, sorry. They might have the same investment thesis for 30 years and they'll still be, you know, writing books and all the rest of it on, on how good it is. And then you look at, at potentially doing that in this market and it's like that ship sailed decades ago, but, but they're still so rigid in their thinking. So what we're aiming to do is not only find the opportunities, but make sure we find the opportunities as early as possible so that we can take advantage of those for our clients. Yep. Love that. Love that. Okay. So we went out on this uh, mission to go. Okay, how can we start to ex- how can we find new frontiers, right? We, we've been crushing it for the last four and a half years, but how can we find the new frontiers? Where where is the market going? One of my uh, favorite uh, sayings is that if you want to if you want to make a ton of money, find out where demand is going, stand in front of it, and open your wallet, right? And so on that basis, what you actually want to work out is where is the demand going. And if you can position yourself, because most people, 
generally in, in any investment class, just to be clear, not just real estate, Bitcoin, stocks, most people get in once the demand is already there. So they get in once once the growth has already happened, they get in, in in the last half or the last quarter of a growth cycle and they never really, really achieve the gains. So then the the real art of mastery is how do you work out where the demand is going? Go there, right? Go there and then get just get in the way. Just go, okay, I'm just gonna I'll just hang out here. And it's that simple premise that we have discovered can outperform any other tactical strategy. In in in, in it, like that's the thing. That is the one move. That's the big domino. If you can work out where demand is going, and then go position yourself in that market, you can't do like you can't help but win. So tell us more about the study. Yeah, and it's funny. I'll just add one one little extra thing on there with with the demand as well. There's a really interesting time at the moment in the Australian property market where it's always been hyperdynamic, but the the investment demand across Australia is, is I've got a new buzzword for it, sort of like the liquefaction of the investment demand in Australia. As buyers agents get more prevalent, as, as geographically remote gets more, geographically remote investing, sorry, gets more prevalent, the actual demand of where people can invest in property in Australia is becoming way, way, way more fluid. They're moving all across Australia and at a faster rate, which is really, really interesting because traditionally you think of a lot of people or the bulk of investors would invest in the backyard. You know, we want to drive the property and more and more it's becoming where in Australia do we invest? Where's the next hotspot or what's the what's the newest strategy? So it's actually becoming more dynamic, not less as we progress, you know. Could I just book in on that? Because actually I've been looking at global real estate markets um, a fair bit lately just because I've got sort of got an interest in Wanted to, I want to like I'm interested in global investing. I think it's I think the whole when you start to there's one thing when you change from a local dynamic thinking about all right I live in Melbourne should I invest in Melbourne to then thinking about Australia wide. But then if you realise that Australia is just one part of a whole you know planet, then you get to start thinking oh this is really interesting because then you have different countries and different dynamics and then you, and I've seen the same thing playing out on a, on a like a global level particularly with like digital nomadism and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and it's it's fascinating to see how so to, to so there's digital nomadism, but one of the correlations you see is internet access, right? And so you have all these places. They might be like beautiful, um, you know, seaside surf towns that are just completely picturesque and all of that kind of stuff. But maybe historically they had no no good internet access, right? But then all of a sudden they get good internet access, and all of a sudden like you have all these digital nomads coming in. And then when the digital nomads come in, all these cafes start popping up, and then all these rich richer, wealthier people, like more affluent people, start going, wow, this is beautiful beachside town. It's got all these beautiful cafes. I'm going to move there and I'm going to spend a bunch of money on some property. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing jacks up and you've got the... So the same thing's playing out uh, globally. I think liquefaction is a uh, really interesting terminology uh, for it's it. It's a bit of a mouthful, but we'll roll with that. Yeah, we've, yeah, okay, we'll go with it from though. we've got Humpty Doo dance studios and, and digital nomadism, but um, back back with the study, sort of what we, what we did find is we found... I won't go into the intricacies of, of, of how the study works because it is a little complex, but what we found is normally with these correlation analysis studies, you can get very, very erratic results. It's very, very rare that something will show a clear trend. Um, but in this case, we have seen an incredibly clear trend across a multitude of states, which would suggest that there is a huge opportunity moving into the next couple of years. I think maybe you do need to go into the detail of the study though, Sean, because you've jumped straight to a correlation. Like what is what's, what, are we, what are we studying here? What are, what's the yes. So what we're studying essentially is uh, the growth rates of different assets in different areas. So in this case, what we had is the average annual growth rate of regional houses within a state. So what we call a GCC level is 
for New South Wales, there's Greater Sydney, and then there's rest of New South Wales. We've got Greater Brisbane, rest of Queensland in each respective state. So what we've done is we've looked at the 12-month growth rate every single month for 40 years. So all the way back to, I think, 1982, we had data. So we looked at that growth rate within the regions of each state and then within the capitals of each state and across the granularity of the different asset types we, that we had. So we have houses within regions, we have units within regions, we have houses within capitals, units within capitals. And then we started to look to see if there was any trends of the swings of which would grow more. So not necessarily what's going backwards, what's going forwards or anything like that, but where the best outcome is, where the best growth was. And what we actually found and is that- just, just to, Sorry, sorry, Sean, I keep interrupting you, but this is useful, right? You mentioned correlation earlier, right? And so, because a lot of people, you jump to correlation, people might be a little bit confused. But what's what's interesting when we start to do these studies, right, is we start to look for how are these things co-related. That is what literally what correlation means. They have they are directly related one to another because that helps actually break down the context of correlation. It's like, okay, if this thing does this, then there's a there's a co-relationship between that and something else. Whereas like this thing does this and then that thing does that. And is are they directly linked or are they just happening to randomly do similar things at similar times? And if you have enough data, you can actually find if this does this, then that does that. And you can start to find the correlation between those two things. So to uh, butt in there, but I think it's a very important point. No, no, it is important. So what we're looking at is, is there any correlation between or is there swings between which of these asset types in different areas will grow the most at any given time. And what we found is an incredibly clear trend or cycle. So I know we talk about property cycles a lot, but a cycle from growth in the regional house market through to the capital city market in each state consistently over 40 years. So what that means, breaking it down, is that we can quite clearly see in certain states, they're all at different points in their cycles and they, the cycles all performed a little bit differently. Some swung really, really hard from one side to the other. Some swung a little less. The length of the cycles were different. But what we could identify is these sort of little pockets where you were sitting in the perfect spot where, you know, the regions may still growing, may still grow, sorry. But what you're going to get is a swing through to capital city units, which I think provides a really, really exciting. So just specifically capital city units, because you said a second ago capital city markets. You mean just yeah, capital, sorry, city, capital units? city units? Yeah, so units. Okay, so let's just recap on that because there's a lot here to unpack, and all the people, most people are listening to this, and we just let's just slow it down a little bit. So what you've basically said is that we analysed 40 years worth of data, and what we found is that. When regional, there was a correlation between regional house growth and capital city unit growth. And that relationship looked something like as growth slowed down in regional house markets, growth started to speed up in capital city unit markets. Is that kind of the, the right way to yeah. think about it? It's and and relevant to each, sometimes they might have both been going down, but one was going down faster than, faster than the other and so on and so forth. But what we found is a really clear and consistent trend in each of the states. So we're not just saying there was one trend and we're just coming off the back of it and it's looking good. We looked at the 40 years and there was a consistent length of time that these swings would occur and a, and a, a consistent amount that these swings would occur in each state. Do you happen to have the, any of the graphics? Ooh, yep, yep, I sure do. Right. Okay, so Sean, so this is this, talk us talk us through this. So if you're listening to this on audio, if you're one of the listeners to this on audio, we're showing a graph on the screen. You're not going to be able to see it because you're this is in your ears. 
If you're listening to this on audio, go to YouTube, right? Because what you will see when you go to YouTube is research and data that you will not find anywhere else. Full stop. There is no other place you're going to find this. So, Sean, I'd love for you to talk us through this and maybe you can show us a couple of examples because this is this finding, I think, is pretty wild. Yeah, so, so what you look at here is, uh, as I said before, the difference in New South Wales regional houses, median sales price, price growth every single month. So it's the 12-month growth rate every single month. I know that's a bit, of a bit of a mouthful, but essentially what you're looking at, if regional houses grew more than units every single year, you would just see a whole lot of lines up above that middle line. If they grew at the exact same rate, it would just go all the way along that centre line there. Now, what you would expect to see in this is one big line up, two lines down, one little line up, two lines down, and just scattering all over the place. Because what that would tell you is that there is little to no correlation. Sometimes units are better, sometimes houses are better. It doesn't really matter. But instead, what you can see here is these substantial and consistent swings up and down across the last 40 years. So as you can see, like, like with the two, two sort of pulses up above the line, you've got a very clear ramp up and then a very clear ramp down and then a number of years on the other side of the graph. So what that means is that every time the lines are above the graph, regional houses are growing at a faster rate than units. Not that units are going backwards or houses are going up, anything like that, but they're growing at a faster rate. When you go below the line, you're seeing that capital city units, in this case, Sydney units, are growing at a faster rate than rest of New South Wales houses. Awesome. And does this hold true? Have you got examples of some others? So this graph that we're looking at here, this is New South Wales. This is regional New South Wales houses versus uh, ca capital city uh, units. What, what's this one? Yeah, so you can see Victoria is sort of sort of quite similar, a little bit more erratic, but the swings are quite quite large, as you can see by this one. I don't know if you can see my mouse, but like yep. these ones here, they're quite large, whereas some other states, um, which could be attributed to quite a number of factors, can be a bit less. So if you go over to Queensland, that's still quite substantial. And then when we look at WA, you can see the, the swings, while they might be a little bit longer, are a little bit less prevalent. Yeah, so this is pretty interesting because what we can see there is a really clear, consistent pattern, right? And this is the thing that, that people have sort of got to, get, got to get their head around. What we're seeing is that above the line, at when regional houses have more growth, the, the lines are longer above the, above the line. And we can see typically it seems to ramp up, have a nice kind of rounded curve, ramp down, and then it ramps down, crosses the line, and that crosses over to the capital city unit market in that state starting to grow faster. And then that starts to round out and come back to the line. And so we've effectively got this nice wave where you have regional houses, capital city units, regional houses, capital city units. It's a pretty interesting pattern. Yeah, I was just going to say, just for context for everyone else, something crazy must have been going on in WA in the, the mid-80s. But this is what you would expect to see with, with little to no correlation. So you can see all the way, we're down in 85 here and there's a little bit of craziness going on here it's likely that the data grouping was off or, or whatever it is but that is what you would normally see with yeah. a, cor a correlation or a swing analysis that that doesn't have any correlation these sort of gentle ups and downs and swings is where you really sort of really onto something yeah yeah that's awesome that's awesome okay so what's the big learning from this like what what's the what, what does this point to so it's what all right so we've we've found this interesting correlation what's your synopsis on what does this mean so that's, that's one piece of the puzzle. We never hang our hat on, on one, one sort of study. And this is also what, what we would consider quite a macro study. So you're looking on a whole state basis. This doesn't necessarily mean, hey, let's go and throw a dart at Sydney and buy a unit and you're 
off to the races sort of thing. It's a very, very macro study. So then we start to look for how many arrows can we get pointing in the same direction, which I'm sure we're going to cover in this episode. But within some of the, the places that we've then started to look in at suburb level or at population increases or where the population density is increasing, immigration, there's a huge number of things that we then look to to see if we can confirm our hypothesis based on an initial study like this. Yeah. Do you have any other? I'm. I'm just going to ping. I'm like. I'm going to be. Let's. Let's show the data. Let's show some yeah, evidence. Yeah, because. Well, because a lot of people are going to be listening to this and be like, "What are you trying to say? Like, you saying we should go buy fucking units?" And yeah, I, th- I think it's. I think that as you just pointed out, like that's a macro study. So I say, what do you just turn around and just go? All right, we'll just go buy units then, and that doesn't. That doesn't probably that sit doesn't well with a lot up. of people. <laughs> and so, yeah. so, so then, what can you? show me or the listener to provide evidence to point to the fact that that there is the, at a gra- at a deeper granularity that this works have you got any other data we can share I'll go for a bit of a bit of a mythbuster one first because you quite often hear, and this is again the, the static sort of industry mindset that as a second anyone brings up units, they're like, oh, the units, they, they don't grow sort of thing. But here's just a really, really interesting one. We, we did the average yearly growth rate across these 40 years with each and every state. Interestingly enough, you would think that the average annual growth rate of units would be pretty ordinary based on just the consensus of the market. In every single state, so every single capital city unit market that we assessed, across the 40 years, they were all over 6% average annual rate. It gets even better. If you only take the years that they went up, which we are incredibly confident we can identify the years that they're going up, on average, for example, I've got Perth here. If you take the average yearly growth rate in positive growth years only, it was 10.7% that it went up, which for most people at home, when you're thinking of units, you're not thinking of getting 10.7% growth annually. You normally think of going backwards and getting big strata bills and all the other stuff that's commonly associated with them. Yeah, that's that's hectic because that is one of the biggest... And look, I've been pretty vocal about this um, kind of stuff in the past. That like we've, we've been sort of had a pretty anti-unit stance. So we'll get into like, you know, the definitions of units and stuff in a, in a minute. We'll get into, get into the weeds there. But like we've had that kind of position of like units don't grow as much as houses do. They don't have the land component, all of that kind of stuff. So to hear, and I'm, and we'll, we'll dig into that in a minute, um, I, I'm sure, because I want to kind of stick with the, I want to kind of like tease out this. So whilst I'm waffling on, maybe do you want to even, I'm, I'm happy for us to show some like a suburb level, even if it's like, even though we might be giving away some of the, secret source here on a specific location i would rather give away a location to show people what is possible than to uh wander in ambiguity and say no 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 it's good so let's just let's just give let's give the people what they need because the most important thing uh for me is that we want to help as many people make better decisions as possible and so i would rather as um you know let's just go or let's go all in basically is what i'm saying um the, the finding that you just talked about there, that we can get really strong growth in units, that's the big unlock. Like that's that's like the, oh, wait, hang on a second. Now, it's one thing to say you can get growth in units. It's another thing to be able to identify when and how to get the growth in the units. It's all well and good to go, okay, well, on average, they do X. We've all had stories that people lost money, right? I have, <laughs> you know, in the units. Jason, did you lose money in yours? Yeah, yeah, I've right. Well, the, the, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly, right. So, so there's two horror stories sitting in, sitting in the room, right? And so, so from that uh, perspective, what I think the most important thing we need to understand here is going back to the hyperdynamic statement. There is a time, and also then linking this back to the first episode we did, there is a time and a place for every asset. 
right? There's no such thing as a bad asset. There's only bad asset selection. And so understand if we can help people to understand that there could be, well, that we can find the right time to enter and exit this kind of market to maximize the opportunity, that's a game changer because typically units have higher yields uh, and all of this kind of stuff. And so there's a there's a crazy uh, potential opportunity here. We'll talk about where this might fit in people's portfolios uh, as well. But while, Sh- while Sean is finding some um, compelling data, Jason, what are your thoughts on this study? Oh, I think it's super interesting, especially because in the property market, we have something called asymmetric information, right? Where one party has more information on a transaction than the other. And we're in a really unique position to be able to kind of pressure test some of these assumptions as opposed to just taking whatever the the sentiment is across the board. So it gives us a, a really unique opportunity to be able to find really exciting opportunities for our clients. So I'm really excited to obviously dig into this and, and see how we can help people navigate through constraints because there's definitely a place all these assets in portfolios and we've been able to almost build like a, a very interesting asset class here where we can capture growth and yield and get exposure to some capital city markets as well which is going to be really advantageous from yeah super, super there's so much to unpack here um but, 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 but oh, okay, i want to get into that that fidelity and all that kind of stuff in a minute but we've sean are you ready with a suburb example yeah, yeah, because a, a really really quick one yeah, because what we and, – and let's just walk people through some of the data that we can see there because it's all well and good, as we've said, to go, hey, look, there's this macro trend. And if you kind of look at it, it swings and it's like, okay, so what do we just expect that, okay, well, we, if we can see it going that way, then we just got to just hope that it's going to work out for us. How could we know? Like what is going to give us the confidence to be able to point to the fact that this is going to work? All right, so I'll just caveat really quickly as well that I've just started clicking around some random suburbs and I haven't looked in, in depth into this particular suburb. So sure, I just picked a good example. <laughs> yeah, I hope I did as well. <laughs> I hope I did as well. But another thing that I will say with this unit data is, is I'm sure we'll get into it in a minute, but units are encapsulated very, very strangely. And that's why lots of these horror stories slip through. Units as, as such with most data or with all data providers include everything from, you know, half a duplex, a townhouse, a penthouse apartment, an off-the-plan thing that you can go backwards 50 grand on like there's a huge number of things that sit within the unit banner so a lot of these studies that we do the point in the right direction are really really exciting because they're pointing in the right direction when you're putting all this garbage in with the good stuff so if we can still then pull out what the best asset types are what you know units that potentially have a good land component or all these other little bits and pieces that you can throw into the recipe it means that you're looking really really promising if that that data which is encompassing all the the not so great stuff is still pointing in the right direction but really quickly on this, I've just grabbed a suburb in Perth, over in Perth, very, very close to the CBD, which again is quite exciting. And you can see things like this. These are landlocked suburbs, so there's no more land. They're not they're not expanding outwards. And you can get population forecasts of, you know, we've seen anywhere from five through to this one here is 28% population increase up until 2028. So when you're increasing population density like that in an existing landlocked suburbs, that's when you get some really really spicy opportunities yeah and just a point just to labor on that point a little bit that population forecast comes from the most sophisticated population forecasting modeling in in australia this is not just sort of some census kind of nonsense 
you know. So here's another really exciting thing. Um, it's at excess. A lot of these are in areas which are incredibly close in major capitals to CBDs. So great amount of utility and close to utility and close to migration and immigration. A lot of other things I'm sure we'll get into at very, very affordable prices. So again, this is the median. We might be looking to buy- 310,000. Yeah, yeah. 310,000 for those that are uh, on audio at a 7.4% median rental yield. You can see how much the rents have shot up without the prices shooting up by this yield shooting up by 14% over the last Which year. Which is a really good sign for those of you playing at home. If you see rents shoot up before prices shoot up, that's typically that's what we call the Goldilocks zone. Can you just go back to the um the, the dwelling types there, Sean? Because that, that bubble graph there, that shows the demand based on different dwelling types. Yeah. What's interesting to me is, the can you just hover over the flat or unit 11% and 12% respectively. So what are we talking there? Um, 20, 23% of people in the suburb prefer a flat or unit or a, a unit or apartment. Can you just hover over the three three bedroom um, three three bedroom sorry three bedroom house three bedroom separated house. So only 11% of people. So 11 um, wow. what's that? 11% and then 5%. So only 18% of people in this suburb would actually prefer to live in a house. And in, there's more demand. There's 26% of people want are happy with an apartment. 16% of people are happy with uh, a house. So that, and then the balance is all in semi-detached. So townhouses and, and all that kind of stuff. That is really interesting. That is really interesting because if you just look at houses versus apartments in that context, there's more demand for apartments than there are houses in that specific market. And the very, very interesting thing about this as well, we always talk about layers of thinking. A lot of people can look at this and say, oh, well, there's more people want to live in, in semi-detached, but it's not actually where the graph is at the moment. It's the movement of the graph, which is where you get in the way of, of opportunity and demand. So in this area, you can tell it's a landlocked area. It's going to get 28% or whatever it is, more population over the next four or five years. What that means is you're getting an increase in density of population. Increase in density of population means that you start to get some pretty solid dollar per square metre um, growth rates in land and people will start building more units, more apartments, more flats. So if you get into a property before that demand has moved rather than when it's already there, um, that's a really, really good way to capture some pretty exciting growth. Yeah, of course, we don't want to end up with an oversupply. So I want to talk, we'll talk about that in a minute. If you keep, let's keep going through the data. Yeah, so I'm not sure how far we want to go through this or, or explain go for it. Just go for pieces, it, but I'd say one other really, really positive thing, like Perth, for example, I'm sure a lot of the listeners know has had in some places, 70% growth over the last like three or four years. So I'm not saying by any stretch that Perth is done, but a lot of the, the areas within Perth have had substantial growth and the delta between house price and unit price has grown dramatically. The good thing with a lot of these unit markets, especially over in Perth, is as you can see here, it's had 3% growth over the last five years. So it hasn't moved yet. It hasn't taken advantage of this huge swing into Perth. And mm -hmm. it can, by a lot of our metrics, look like it's right in that pocket to be a lot earlier than, you know, the majority of these house markets. Love it. Sweet. So, do you want me to go through all the? Uh, no, well, let's bits like and pieces, let's just or? point out the, let's let's just point out the demand to supply ratio because I think that's the it's just the not the um, not the indicators. If we just go to the go down to the ratio, right? So. No, I was just going to say it is a pretty interesting thing to look at supply because supply is a big issue with units that people often think is that there's infinite supply of units, which is, is not correct, especially depending on the style of unit that you buy. Like, for example, if you buy a half duplex, there is not an infinite amount of half duplexes that you can put into a suburb. The other interesting thing about these swings that we've identified is a lot of it can correlate with 
um, the certain LGA suburb and state and the country's ability to actually provide this new supply. And as a lot of people know, at the moment for the next three to five years, currently building approvals are at some of the lowest that they've been in Australia. I actually read a stat that building approvals across the country for multi-dwellings, so that's not just a house, that's anything that's two or more dwellings, we're down something like 44% year on year. So there's no new no new units being built, or there's very, very few units being built. And based on supply chain, labour shortage, a lot of these other issues that the building industry is facing, supply even of these high-rise units is being restricted, let alone these sort of more boutique units or units with land content or or different bits and pieces like that are. Love it. Yeah, but onto the demand to supply ratio, what this essentially means. Do you want to explain? Yeah, just explain this graph and explain like what happens when, when it's above the line, below the line, yeah, just give people so, the context. So I'm not sure if we've, yeah, I'll, I'll go over essentially what this means is uh, quite a while ago, the Dashdot technology team developed what we call the neutral band. So they assessed a huge range of suburbs over a huge range of time and found when this ratio that we measure in our own specific way, where on this ratio are prices likely to go up? Where are they likely to stay the same? Where are they likely to go down? And held incredibly true across a huge range of markets in Australia. So what that means is once you're above the neutral band here, and especially trending up is what we like to see, prices are incredibly likely to go up. So what you'll see in a lot of Western Australia areas um, in house markets at the moment is a huge big spike up over COVID and then a little bit of a trail down coming into now. So why that's exceptionally exciting here is as you can see, it hasn't had the huge spike and dip off. Yes. It's just poking out of the neutral band and on its way up. Very exciting. Very exciting. So we don't need to, we, we could spend the next half an yeah, hour going through all of this kind of stuff. But, like, but I think this is really interesting because this actually points to like, we've got vacancy rates trending down. We've got the demand to supply uh, ratio trending up. Uh, we've got like all of these kind of things pointing in the direction that this looks like this looks like growth to us based on what we can see in this data. Hundred percent. Yeah, awesome. So that's super exciting. So the question we need to start asking ourselves then is like, okay, so let's say that we can let's say that we can validate that just in in a very similar way to we, that we've been able to do the housing market um, over the last four and a half years. If we're now able to identify. In this, in a very, very much the same way, that we can identify unit market suburbs where there's an optimal time to buy to get growth and yield. The question needs to be then, how and where might this fit into my portfolio? So why don't we kind of start picking apart some of this kind of stuff, Jason? Let's start picking apart some of the nuance in units. Like we talk, we say units, but units can mean all kinds of things. Like what's the? How do we think about this? Yeah, I think the easiest way to think about units is that they're, they're properties that are essentially grouped together that share some common areas. So that could be a whole different host of uh, property types like Sean mentioned. So you could have a, a townhouse complex, for example, where there's five or six units that share maybe a uh, common area for gardening, for example, or they have shrubbery and lawns that need to be taken care of. You could have big apartment complexes where there are common areas like gyms and pools and saunas. So essentially any dwellings that are grouped together um, that have some sort of common area, they'll traditionally have what's called a body corporate in place, which is essentially a body that's responsible for managing uh, managing those common areas for the for the tenants and a set, uh, for the owners, sorry. And they'll charge a fee on that on that behalf. And that will also include some things like insurance and maintaining those areas as well, which is an interesting New costs to take into account when you are looking at units. So this, this, so a few of the things that people are going to be thinking, right? Okay, so let's say let's say that they're that that, that they're like listening to this and like, mm, okay, I'm sort of generally on board with the idea that you know 
unit markets might go up. And if and if I can find the right time to enter into the new market, then that's a good thing. Some of the things they're going to be thinking in are, ah, what about all the strata costs, right? And what about the fact that you, you don't own any of the land? And what about all of this kind of stuff? So let's start picking some of this kind of stuff apart. Like, is the strata cost actually that big of an issue? And is, is there some ways that some costs are less? Because right? I kind of get the sense that, um, you know, yes, you do have some additional costs, but you also have lower costs in some areas uh, on that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. So there are definitely some variances in costs. So on the unit front, because you do have that body corporate, some people can see that as an additional expense, but that actually does include some of the expenses that you would be paying if you owned a non-unit type property like a house. So it includes things like maintenance of the common areas, it includes building insurance, which is traditionally quite a big cost uh, in owning in owning a house, and it also includes maintenance for those common areas as well. So it can, can significantly actually reduce your maintenance costs if you're buying the right asset, and it can also reduce some of the holding costs that you that you have when owning a property as well. If you can buy the right asset, you can get to a point where the strata fees are essentially in line with what you would normally pay for insurance, maybe a little bit more to still account for those maintenance costs. So you can actually neutral that out and end up with a position where you're not paying a significant amount of strata fees. Just need to be very careful on what that specific asset is that you're purchasing because if the strata fees between a high rise that has a pool, gym, sauna, for example, can be seven, eight thousand dollars compared to a boutique block of villas that just has a lawn that needs to be maintained once a month. So that's a really interesting consideration. I can and it can eat into your um, yields quite significantly if you make that mistake in terms of identifying the, the right types of assets to get into a niche market. Interesting. Sean, you look like you had something to say on that topic. No, no, I was just going to laugh. I actually saw one the other day. It was a 280 grand unit it, in Cairns and it was 15 grand per year strata cost. So that's precisely whoa. what we mean when you get all these like big tourist center, the whole, you know, I, I don't know, they must have had like a, a water slide or something in there, or maybe a movie theater, who knows. But yeah, it's very interesting that like that is a story that people will hold on to. Whereas you can look at some of these places where we've seen strata cost is literally maybe $300 a quarter, which a house in the same suburb, you're paying 2500 a year annually for your building insurance. So in some cases, not all, it can actually be, be less. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Certainly it can be. so, But it does start to actually point to some nuance around how people should think about the asset selection, right? And so, you know, kind of what that points to is maybe, and look, everyone's, everyone's needs are going to be different. So you can't say like, don't buy a property that has all of those features, but uh, if if one of your concerns is like net cash flow, you actually might that might be a might be a um a significant consideration. And so, uh, how do we th- how do we think about things like land asset ratios, and also how do we think about things like oversupply risk? Because of course you've got issues like in um Docklands in Melbourne and Fortitude Valley in Brisbane, where just supply went through the roof, and the whole unit market has been a nightmare, and you wouldn't want to own in any of those places. Um, so how do, how do we think about managing that risk? Because it's all well and good to go, like, like as we were talking about in the first episode, we were talking about risk-adjusted return. So it's all well and good to to turn around and say, hey, look, this thing's going to grow. But it's like, how do we think about the risk on that? Like, Because if it's, yeah, it's going to grow, but then some schmo is going to go build a thousand units, and I'm going to lose all my money. How do we think about that? Yeah, so I'd say things grow based on, like if we dial it right back down, they, they grow based on scarcity and demand. So if you're going to buy a unit that is in a block of 500 and you understand that that whole suburb has the ability to build these towers of 500, 
you're putting yourself in a position where there is essentially not infinite, but infinite supply that could enter the market at any point in time. And that's where most of these sort of horror stories come from. So what you're looking to do is get yourself into an asset that has an element of scarcity. That element of scarcity can be any number of things. But, you know, if, if I'm going to dial it back, right back to something really, really simple, if you're talking about a, a half duplex that's close to a beach in anywhere close to a beach in Australia, really, it's still got that section of land, which is going to be scarce over time. There's not going to be an infinite amount of land, and especially not as they start to build these 500 unit towers nearby, that's going to become something that's incredibly scarce over time. So one of the ways we look at that is, is by sort of land asset ratios, which I, I don't know if many people would have heard before. It's a term that's used in all sorts of things, all sorts of things, commercial a lot of the time as well. But in the case of, say, a half duplex, you'd be looking at a land asset ratio. You, you want to try to identify how much of the land you actually possess with the sale. So in the case of that 500 unit block, you know, you wouldn't necessarily own one 500th of it, but theoretically you do. When you're talking about a half duplex, you are owning 50% of that land. So again, it's sort of layers of thinking where people might think in the case of sort of Let's, let's talk about Queensland. You could think of buying a house way out in, in Logan and you own the whole block of land and the accessible value of that land is $250,000. You might then buy a townhouse in the Gold Coast that's close to the, close to the Esplanade. That block of land there is worth a million dollars, but you're in a block of four and you in that area also own $250,000 of accessible land. But the, the big question mark there is, that land does not appreciate at the same rate dollar per square meter in every single location. Because the thinking there is, can I just get the biggest possible block of land anywhere in Australia? And that's going to go up the most because I've got the biggest block of dirt. But by that metric, if you had bought a townhouse in inner Sydney on 150 square meters, that would have been a terrible investment 10 or 20 years ago, which we know is not true. So that's why mm, we're talking yeah, and about- by that by that logic, some 10,000 acre, you know, cattle station yeah, out in Alice Springs is going yeah, through yeah, the roof. Yeah. Maybe Humpty Doo might come back into it. There might be an excellent cattle station out there that's just going through the roof. But that's why we talk about scarcity because these places are the places we want to identify that are intensifying in, in population because people want to live there. It's, it's like the story of, you know, an apartment in, in Bondi Beach. People want to, that's a very, very simple example. I'm not saying buy apartments in Bondi Beach, but people want to live there. So that's why that land is in, in demand. And if you can find a resource in an area that's in demand that's scarce, that's that's getting in the way of the movement of money. Yeah, awesome, love it. Okay, what what else? Do, how else do we need to think about this though, right? Because this is potentially a big quantum shift for people to consider. Um, what are some of the so? What are some of the kind of like the macro trends that are going to support this becoming a reality? Like, how do we think about? You know, you talked about building approvals that are um, that, that are low, particularly low in multi uh, multi dwellings, uh, 44 percent down on, on multi dwelling approvals. What about um, what about immigration? How do we like? How do we think about stuff like that? That's that's the massive one here, and a good reason why we wanted to really, really investigate what's going on across the country. Because what's happening at the moment, I don't know if everyone's seen the headlines, but pre-COVID, we were letting I think it was around two hundred twenty thousand people for the last year we we're measuring pre-COVID entered the country. That's net international migration, and this is this is data from March this year, so it's already a bit bit late. But March this year, dialing back a year, we let in four hundred fifty-seven or four hundred fifty-four thousand, so double pre-COVID levels with the aim to actually ramp that up. So that's not including all the other bits of population growth within the country. That's just net internal migration. And where that goes across Australia is international migrants always enter the capital cities. And then quite often the net internal migration will then spread out to the regions. But 
The very interesting part about this is obviously we're getting huge amounts of people flocking into these capitals with virtually no more dwellings built. The other cool part of this is that these people that move here as skilled labour, they aren't initially purchasing homes, units, all the rest of it. They're, they're living here for, say, two to three years until they get their permanent visa, and then they're buying. So that's why you're looking at extreme rental growth in some of these situations as this you know, housing crisis, wor housing crisis worsens, and then over time that can move into MSP growth as these people sort of start to buy. Yeah. The, the, other, the other side of that as well is that... Um you know, the, the great Australian dream is to have a house on a quarter acre block, right? Something like that. But for, for most countries, that's not, that's, not, that's not practical. Like most countries are living in high density. And so as we get more migrants as well, there's more propensity for people to be happier living in a pub. I live in an apartment right now. Like I'm in a, I'm in a two, two bedroom apartment. I actually, you know, we, we had a whole big, you know, big villa and all of that kind of stuff. I actually prefer the apartment, right? And so people have a preference to, um, more compact living, and in fact, that's a macro trend that we can see as well. But the other, the other, the other part of that is the affordability, right? So if we look at like location selection, the three things we want to look for is lifestyle, jobs, and affordability. And so what we can find is that these units, because they're lagging in price growth versus the housing market, they actually become a, an affordability play as well, where people can still want to participate and. You know, realistically, homeowners drive property markets more than investors do anyway. So as people then start to go, oh, I can live in this location here, which I actually like, and they'll choose the affordability option, which is then what actually swings the prices back up as well. So there's there's a it seems like there's a we're we're observing an inefficiency moment in the market where there's an underpriced asset that we can take advantage of. Does that make sense? Yeah. The relative affordability on some of these things is is insane. Like we've we've reviewed this on on thousands and thousands of house markets across Australia. But as you can see, these house markets moving up, and a lot of these um, a lot of these migrants are skilled workers. Like they're they're not sort of just moving over here with nothing going on. They're highly skilled workers that are moving close to CBDs of capital cities. So they're on pretty good wickets most of them. So the median incomes in some of these suburbs are very very strong when you compare that to the price of these assets there is huge huge room for upswing mm. so why would why would if someone's in a position to buy right now why would they choose to buy a unit versus buying a house let's say they've got a four hundred thousand dollar budget or something like that why would they choose to buy a unit versus a, a house okay look let me clarify that a capital city unit versus a versus a house yeah, it's a good question. There's there's multiple different uh, options and it's really important to consider your portfolio constraints when you are doing this as well, just so you can make sure you're operating in line with that. But from an affordability perspective, having the having the lower price point there allows someone to get access to a market that is very close to a capital city and access a portion of land within that market as well, which is really advantageous when you're looking at comparing prices for houses and units. Like if someone had a similar budget and we're looking, I was looking at a house, you'd potentially be looking at something a little bit further away. So being able to access and be really close to their centers of utility is one reason in terms of like a diversification and asset type risk. There's also yield because they're at a lower price point. And we've also seen like with what Sean said, the rents have been rising significantly, but the capital prices haven't moved. There's a really high rental yield opportunity for some of these assets as well, which can be really helpful in navigating cash flow constraints for investors, especially as we look at um, rising interest rates now where holding costs are becoming a bit of a challenge and looking at still looking at creative ways to continue growing out your portfolio whilst operating within those constraints those would be the two most um, common 
strategies that I would see, but there's also scope to add units into as part of that modern portfolio theory approach as well. If you've built out a sizable capital position and your portfolio is quite negative, for example, you could add units as a way to be able to neutralize those portfolios in terms of uh, the things like, so I think you mentioned this on your podcast, Stephen McClatchy as well. So being able to kind of build these well-rounded portfolios to be able to allow you to continue scaling and, and building out your properties. Yeah, love it. Have we got some numbers around like yield comparisons just so people can get some context around this? Because I know some people I think are like capital city units, they're probably still going to get like 3% yield or something like that. Surely I'd be better off going and buying a property in some, you know, regional center. And because of course, it's not all about being close to capital cities, although that is good. It's good to get some exposure to those markets, but we see a lot of growth in non-capital uh, city markets as well. So, so, so but how would this compare? Say a $400,000 uh, unit in a, in a capital city, uh, a $400,000 apartment in a capital city versus a $400,000 house in a major regional center. We've got some kind of comparison numbers in that rough, just even some heuristics. I can do some really, really rough ones. It depends on the state and the price range, obviously, but you're looking at least a, a couple of percentiles higher than a median yield in a house. So say you might be able to get a, and that's that's compared to a regional house, sorry. If you're talking in the capital city, you might be looking at, like I think that one we just had a look at in Perth was something insane. It was like 7.8 or 8 or something like that. Like that is obviously an incredibly high um, example, but even when you're looking in places like like Sydney, I looked in Sydney the other day and I found a suburb where median house price was 1.19 and the unit price was $450,000 and you got a 5.8% yield. Which where else in Sydney can you get a sort of 5.8% yield? And not saying yield is everything, but they are significantly higher um, than the house within the same market. Which again goes back to the fact that units have a place in everyone's portfolio when you don't want to get stuck. The purpose would be not getting stuck. Might be a different unit to get you unstuck depending what situation you're in, but I feel like there's a place for them in each each portfolio depending on the circumstance. Yeah, and I think it's a, I think it's a good message to bring it back to because the goal here is not to become dogmatic around um, specific asset types. The goal here, and even if you're just starting out, you might be like getting stuck is not the issue. Getting started is the issue, right? So, But the goal here should be how can I be the smartest investor that is going to get my get myself from where I am now to where, where I want to be in the fastest possible path with the least amount of risk? Now, in order to do that, the fastest possible path is going to be the path that allows you to buy more properties sooner, faster, better, and also get you the return that you want, right? And so, when we talk about not getting stuck, it can seem a little bit like, well, I'm not stuck, so why should I be cared, cared about that? The other way to think about it is like, Without a, how do you make? You might be very sure. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> but, but, no, but, but, look, it's probably fair, right? Because if you haven't experienced it, you don't know what it's like. The other way to think about it is, uh, oh, so if I think about it like this, I can get to my goals faster. Yeah, that's a fucking way better way of thinking about it because most people never get to their goals. And so, if you become a, a more intelligent investor and take on some of this kind of stuff, you actually mm-hmm. might be able to get to your goals, I don't know, five, six times faster than everybody else, which is great because then you get to get to go live the life that you always wanted all because you were prepared to take the opportunity to think a little differently. So I think it's a great way to kind of bring it back. Is there anything else we want to cover out on this topic? Because I know we could spend we could spend hours we talking could, about it. Oh, here's, yeah, yeah, here's, uh, here's yeah. all the detail about this. But let's do a quick little recap because we kind of covered a, a lot of ground in here. So in the first instance, we started by doing uh, some research to try and work out where the next frontier was, where the next big opportunity was in the real estate market. We found a huge correlation between uh, uh, a huge relationship correlation between median house price growth in regional markets and median uh, median unit price growth in capital city markets. 
And that correlation was that when one swings down, the other one swings up, basically. So and so then we can see that as you kind of taper out in different markets, you, you get a swing back. We, we hypothesize that's related to a whole bunch of different stuff, including affordability, migration, lifestyle, all of these things that support longevity. We're able to identify also that um, we're able to identify the markets that have got lower supply risk and also are able to identify which capital city unit markets have the highest likelihood for growth, which means that units are no longer just uh, kind of like, well, if you, if you don't care about growth and you want to get some yield, maybe invest in some units, you can actually get both, which means that if you can do that and you can manage the risk and you can get the growth and the yield and you can enter the market at a lower price point than houses, you have a greater ability to accelerate your portfolio to get to your goals. Have I kind of summarized that well enough? I think that's a, like what you mentioned there, Kevin, scaling your portfolio is super important, but also the people looking to start out with growing out their portfolio, right? Because the biggest cohort of investors don't have any properties. And traditionally, the biggest barrier to entry is starting capital. So being able to invest in an asset class where there's a lower, at a lower price point and a more affordable price point and allow you to leapfrog from that to continue growing out your portfolio as opposed to taking more time to be able to save up that deposit whilst property prices are accelerating quicker, um, it, it allows you a really good opportunity to get into the market, being able to manage your portfolio constraints and then build off that one asset to continue um, growing out your portfolio as well. Love it. Love it. I think this is awesome. It's so interesting. So for people listening to this, obviously, Daftstart has long had a perspective that we focus on houses. And the reason for that is because we hadn't yet uh, had compelling enough data to point us in the direction that units was a good move. We now have that data. And in fact, as we've been sharing this internally with our team, the the like almost everyone on the Dashlot team, and we have nearly we have about a hundred people on the team now. Or basically everyone is like, holy shit, let's go buy let's go buy apartments. I'm not saying that lightly, because this is our reputation that is on the line. Right. But when you have when you have people from the data and technology team, when you have people from the property acquisition team, when you have people who are smart cookies when it comes to this stuff going, uh, I'm going to buy a unit. I'm going to buy an apartment. This looks crazy. You know that you've got something interesting going on. Uh, and so this is this is a shift. But I think that this is a shift that if you can stand up and pay attention to it, let go of some of your preconceived uh, beliefs, which is what we've had to do as well, by the way, because we all had a point of view that what, we, you didn't do that kind of thing. But there is an opportunity here that if you seek to embrace it could be transformational for you and your portfolio. Now, everyone's circumstances are different. No, that's not financial advice, all of that kind of stuff. But my encouragement here is for you to challenge yourself to think a little bit differently so that you can achieve your goals faster. That would be my uh, imposition here. Okay, so if you found this episode useful, which I'm sure that you have because we've covered um, research that you're not going to find anywhere else. We've even shown you some of the data. We've even shown you internal stuff that we've shared only with our team inside. If you found this useful, then make sure you subscribe. Make sure you share this with someone else who's going to benefit from this. This is possibly one of the biggest opportunities that we're going to see, particularly going into 2024. And my hope for you is that you take this on board and use it, use this information. Now, if you want to work with Dashdot, great. We can help you do that too. So just to book a discovery call, head to dashdot.com.au forward slash discovery, book a chat with our team. Bearing in mind, just to be clear, we're going to be closing our doors and capping the amount of clients we can take on board in 2024. So if you want to get involved, suggest you, get, you take action sooner rather than later.
If you don't want to work with us, still take this advice on board because if you don't, you could be sleeping on one of the biggest opportunities in 2024. So with that, we'll see you in the next episode.